My name is Paul Copan, and I'll be speaking on this topic, uh, Did God Permit Slavery? And this is uh, an adaptation from a book that I did called Is God a Moral Monster? which is on sale in the bookstore and cover all sorts of things about the strange world of the Old Testament, uh, including the killing of the Canaanites, uh, kosher laws and seemingly harsh punishments and, uh, and, uh, and what about the treatment of women uh, in the Old Testament? Uh, you know, what, you know, are they being uh, discriminated against? Uh, so cover the, the gamut of uh, these sorts of things uh, at, a, at, a, at an accessible level. So you may want to check that out. When people, by the way, I'm not used to using PowerPoint when I'm presenting. Uh, usually somebody does it for me. Um, well, maybe I should call on somebody to do that. Well, I'll forget it. But uh, so if I'm a little distracted, bear with me. But uh, the, when we talk about the topic of the old, and um, by the way, I'm not even used to using Max, so this is really uh, going to be interesting. I think just click the button and I'm good, right? Um, uh, when we come to the issue of the, uh, the button, and is, does a Mac user, I don't know if I uh, want to doodle, I clicked a button and nothing happened. So uh, maybe just keep it on this here. Is that, just uh, do that. Try. I'm not alone. This is comforting. All right. Okay, we're, we're right button. Maybe just keep my finger there the whole time. That'll be good. All right, excellent. Thank you. You guys are marvelous. When we, read in, as, when we read in the Old Testament about the, you know, we see the term slave or slavery, most people typically associate this with antebellum slavery in the American South. It is pre-Civil War uh, slavery. And when we, when we look at the, uh, you know, what some have said about this, think of the, uh, the writer of Uncle Tom's Cabin, Harriet Beecher Stowe, who said this, the legal power of the master amounts to an absolute despotism over body and soul. She said there is no protection for the slave's life. She's not the only one. Skip ahead to our day. Uh, the atheist Sam Harris, whom William Lane Craig recently debated at Notre Dame, said that slaves are human beings who are, should be capable uh, who are capable of suffering and happiness, yet the Old Testament regards them as farm equipment, which is patently evil. So here you have this abhorrent practice, slavery in the, in the antebellum South, and you have people like uh, Sam Harris making this very close association, you know, treating them as farm equipment. Well, is that really what was taking place in the, uh, in the Old Testament? Is that how they were treated? Uh, is that what the law of Moses required, just treating them as farm equipment? Well, what I'd like to do is briefly address some of these uh, you know, problem passages uh, you know, after giving a general overview of, the, uh, of servitude in Israel. So let's take, uh, take a look at that, first of all. Uh, when, we, when we look at the Old Testament, really what we have in mind here is more like indentured servitude where it's a contractual arrangement which is similar to colonial America. 
For example, in colonial America, you had people who could not afford their passage to the New World. And so in order to get here and make a way for themselves with new opportunities and so forth, people would say, hey, I'll work for you for seven years. Uh, I'll sign a contract. If you can just get me over to the New World, then I'll, I'll be fine. Uh, you know, but that's what I'm really trying to do. So they'd have to you know, get a, somebody to sponsor them, pay a heftier, hefty price for passage. They would work off their debt, and poof, when they were done, they were free, unencumbered citizens in the colonies. So this is the sort of thing that uh, I think a lot of people overlook, that servitude is something that is more like a contractual arrangement. Now, the maximum as we'll see later, was to be seven years, but it could be a year-to-year contract, uh, as Leviticus 25 indicates. So, you know, sometimes the language of the Old Testament will talk about selling, talk about, uh, you know, possess, and so forth. Well, don't be misled here, because what is happening is that the, the language of a legal transaction is being utilized and I'm not saying that being a, you know, having a, a ser- position of servitude in Israel was something to be you know, delighted about, that it wasn't hard, that you didn't have hard chores to do and so forth, but it meant that once you were done with your contract, you were free. Think of sports players. They are traded. They are sold. They have agents to take care of these transactions these owners of these franchises. You know, boy, doesn't that sound crass? Are these, you know, you know, you know, is LeBron James just a piece of furniture or farm equipment here? No, it's just the language. It's just the, the, the nature of these legal transactions. That's how it goes. Now when, now, when Boaz acquires Ruth as his wife, does that mean that she was just a piece of property? No, you see in the book of Ruth that she is you know, fully equal. Yes, she may be a foreigner and so forth, but she is considered a full partner in the relationship with Boaz. What's interesting, and a very dis- something very distinct from antebellum slavery, is that servitude in ancient Israel was voluntary. One sells himself into servitude because one has no other options. This is just what you do when you've had to sell off your land because you've had year after year of famine and so therefore you cannot simply go on anymore. You've exhausted your resources and you say, I need a place to stay. I'll work. You know, people sometimes on the street saying, you know, know, no money, you know, we'll work for food or something. Well, this is the situation. We'll work for food, and that's what you'll do. You'll agree to work for your food, for your clothing, for your shelter, and you know what happens? Your family also gets parceled out. You, and so when, you, when it says, a father selling his daughter? How cruel is that? Well, no, this is what happens when you're impoverished, and you know what? You're in your own tribal land, and you're gonna be close to your own kinfolk who are of the same tribe, and you know what? you've also got what's called a kinsman redeemer. Someone who is the legal point person within the clan who makes sure that people are taken care of and that only as a last resort 
Are you taken into somebody else's home and so forth? There are efforts made in Mosaic legislation in the Old Testament to make provisions for those who are impoverished so that they don't have to live in these sorts of situations to sell themselves into servitude. It was voluntary in destitute times. One uh, biblical scholar says, Hebrew has no vocabulary of slavery, only of servanthood. One of the things that we see in the Old Testament is that's very clear. When we've got Israelite servants, we have the servants guaranteed eventual release within seven years. And again, Leviticus 25 says that an Israelite could be hired from year to year. Uh, but seven years was the max. And what ends up happening is that that person is released and he becomes an unencumbered citizen within Israel again. Unless, of course, he wants to attach himself to that household and remain within it the rest of his life. We'll come to that in a bit. But an Israelite servant, uh, you know, he was guaranteed this release and this institution of servanthood was something that was controlled. It was not, it was the, the goal was to keep people out of poverty so that they could live on their own with sufficient means. You see, we have to be careful, uh, you know, even in you know, Western countries, that sometimes the, the safety nets that we have for people who are poor don't become hammocks where they just hang out and, uh, and live off the, the well-being of others and their hard work and they become the freeloaders. This is an attempt to keep people on track so that they don't, uh, so they don't live in this permanently. Let me say something about the dignity of servants in Israel. <clears throat> and again, remember, let me just reinforce the idea that servitude was not imposed by someone from the outside, but rather it was voluntarily entered into. And also keep in mind, too, that the year of Jubilee was something that every 50 years, you know, again, not that it actually took place, but this is what God desired, is for land to go back to the original owner for debts to be canceled, for servants to be set free. That was part of the kind of, the, uh, kind of cleansing everything, uh, purifying everything, getting back on track so that people couldn't acquire uh, you know, lots of servants, that people couldn't acquire and keep them all you know, without their uh, you know, permission on an ongoing basis, where people could not acquire land and monopolize these tribal territories. So what about the dignity of servants in Israel? Well, as I said before, once a person was freed from his servant obligations, he was a full and free citizen within Israel. And I mentioned also that part of the, you know, you know, there's a triad that keeps on coming up in the Mosaic law. And the triad of people to look out for are those who are widows, those who are the fatherless, and those who are the aliens. These three are repeatedly mentioned and that there needed to be a special care to look out for those three people, kind of paradigms of those who had no recourse except to depend upon the goodwill of others. But the Old Testament legislation sought to prevent voluntary debt servitude. So we have gleaning laws 
Gleaning laws were these laws in which people could, uh, you know, where, where people, when they were harvesting, they shouldn't, they shouldn't harvest absolutely everything down to the last grain, kind of, you know, kind of like the, the Grinch who stole Christmas. You know, he took so much that there wasn't even a speck left for a mouse. No, in, in Israel, when you harvested your field, you had to leave the corners, the edges, uncut, so that the poor of the land could come and harvest. And we see that played out very beautifully in the book of Ruth. You also had laws against charging interest. Usually when foreigners came, you know, Israel was allowed to charge interest to foreigners and the context, the, the, the idea of the foreigners coming has, has the idea of, in all likelihood, business investors who are coming into Israel and so interest could be charged to them for their attempted business practices. But when it came to the people of Israel, when it came to those who are poor in the land, you are not to charge them interest. Also, Israel had laws in which the people who uh, were poorer could offer lower end sacrifices. You know, the animals, you know, or grain, they, they didn't have to have, you know, sacrifice a bull or a sheep, you know, it could be, you know, you know pigeons and so forth. You know, it could be something along those lines, but it was graded according to what people could afford. And as we said already, that debts could be canceled every seven years. Remember, the Mosaic Law begins in, you know, know, the the book of Moses begins in Genesis chapter 1. And in Genesis chapter 1, we see very clearly that all human beings are made in the image of God. And if we have a patriarchal society in which women are not treated as equals, well, this is not because that was God's intention from the beginning. No, we see at the very beginning that God intended for human beings to be understood as equal. Uh, That there are no intrinsic hierarchies based on one's sex or one's one's, uh, place of origin or one's skin color and so forth. So, uh, as, as one, you know, in, in the book, kind of a classic uh, source for biblical studies uh, is the Anchor of Bible Dictionary. And under Old Testament slavery, it says we have in the Bible the first appeals in world literature to treat slaves as human beings for their own sake and not just in the interests of their masters. Time is pressing on and I want to have some time for Q&A, so I'm just going to keep going here. Uh, let me say, let me mention just three remarkable provisions uh, in Israel. You know, you know, Abraham Lincoln in his second inaugural address noted that the northerners and the southerners prayed to the same God. They read from the same Bible, but yet ended up in opposite camps when it came to the issue of slavery. But I would suggest to you that if southerners had taken into account three remarkable provisions. Old Testament, you know, the, you know, the slavery or the servitude in the Old Testament, if it had been a model for, uh, for the new world, uh, for colonial powers and so forth, slavery would not have been an issue at all if the Old Testament law had been followed. First we have, uh, you know, it, we have these uh, anti-harm laws that, there, that if servants were injured, you know, these debt servants were injured. If their eyes were gouged out by accident or their teeth were knocked out by their employer, then they would be let go without any remaining debt to them. 
So that's one provision. Again, we know of the antebellum slavery, which was so fierce. And again, the, as Harriet Beecher Stowe said, there was an absolute despotism, control over the body uh, of the servant or the slave. Secondly, anti-kidnapping laws. Interestingly, in the ancient Near East, you had what was called the Code of Hammurabi, uh, Babylonian law code, which stated that if a slave ran away from his master, he had to be returned to his master or be capitally executed. Think of the fugitive slave laws in the uh, antebellum south where you, if a slave ran away to the north, he could be hunted down by his master and brought back to the south because that was his property. What we have here in the, uh, you know, in the scriptures is a concern for runaway slaves and not subjecting them, these sla runaway slaves, to the harsh treatment of their masters from whom they had run away. Um, we have these anti-kidnapping laws as well that we have, we see that kidnapping another person, which again is how the slave trade got going, kidnapping laws, uh, you know, we have a prohibition against them in a couple of places stating that if someone kidnaps another, you know, personal theft, then that person was to be put to death. Again, a far cry from what we see going on in the, uh, you know, in the scriptures. Uh, or sorry, in the, in the, um, in, in the uh, Civil War uh, era. So we have these remarkable provisions that are, that are noted in the Old Testament that if followed by, these, uh, you know, by, the, by the New World, uh, you know, in America or in, in England, uh, these sorts of things, slavery would not have been an issue. Uh, as Christopher Wright, uh, noted New, uh, Old Testament scholar and uh, writer uh, in, in Old Testament ethics, uh, has written, he says, no other ancient Near Eastern law has been found that holds a master to account for the treatment of his own slaves, as distinct from injury done to, uh, to the slave of another master. Uh, you know, he basically says, you know, if somebody hurt your slave, then you, then, then you get reimbursed for harm done to your slave. But what we have in the scriptures is that if, if, you're, you know, if your slave, if you hurt your slave, you've got to let him go. So this is the kind of contrast that we see not only with the, uh, with the antebellum south, but we also see a remarkable contrast with how uh, servants were to be treated in Israel in contrast to the ancient Near Eastern culture surrounding Israel. Now, we come to some difficult texts. There is a passage in, uh, in, in the book of Exodus 21, and it begins this way. So we'll just tackle the, what I consider to be the three more challenging texts in the, in the Old Testament about servitude or slavery, and we'll try to unpack them briefly, and then we'll have room for uh, Q&A. I think we go till 1045 or so. If a man strikes his male servant or female servant with a staff so that he or she dies as a result of the blow, he will surely be punished. Interestingly, that word nakam is used in connection with capital punishment wherever it's used in the Old Testament. So you have this employer who is to basically uh, you know, be held accountable if he, mur if he murders his servant. It goes on to say, how, however, if the servant, the injured servant survives one or two days, the owner will not be punished, for he has suffered the loss. Well, 
Critics will here say that uh, you can beat the servant to within an inch of his life and basically get off scot-free as long as he doesn't die. That's okay. Well, keep in mind first, as I said earlier, that if a foreign slave could find refuge in Israel, then why not fellow Israelites? And again, a lot of scholars take this passage to be uh, the treatment of a fellow Israelite, a Hebrew, although there is question whether this is actually the case because it could be a foreigner here. The word you know, Hebrew, you know, uh, Habiru, uh, which w- this was associated with people who had no allegiance to a particular country, no political alliance to a country, but were kind of you know, migrant uh, persons who had no uh, citizenship anywhere. So this could be seen as a foreigner, not simply a, uh, you know, a, a, someone who is an Israelite. But at any rate, what we have here in this text is, as I mentioned, capital punishment laws are applied to the master if he kills, uh, or you know, it kills his servant. Life for life. Now, the traditional reading on this is that the servant is his money or his silver. Uh, the employer suffers loss on his investment. But there is another reading here. And, you know, and again, some people say, well, that's his property. Well, no, it's basically that if you injure your servant, you know what, you've just blown the contract, pal. You've lost labor for seven years. If on the first day you strike your servant and he is injured, then that contract is nullified and you end up being the loser. Uh, you don't benefit uh, at all. Now. Another reading, however, which I think, uh, and this is offered by Harry Hoffner at the University of Chicago, uh, an ancient Near Eastern scholar, he says that this is basically in the context of accidental uh, injuries due to quarrels uh, and resulting in accidental killing. Uh, so, for example, you have in, uh, you know, in this context, you have mention of, uh, you know, if men have a quarrel, this is verses 18 and 19 of this passage, If two men have a quarrel, or if men have a quarrel and one strikes the other with a stone or with his fist, and he does not die but remains in bed, if he gets up and walks around outside on his staff, then he who struck him shall go unpunished. He shall only pay for his loss of time and shall take care of him until he is completely healed. So he's basically paying the medical fees. So what we have going on here is that if the judge who is making a ruling on the situation sees that the employer is actually shelling out money to see that his servant is able to recover quickly, that he is being treated medically, then this you know, re- reflects, the, you know, gives the benefit of the doubt to the employer that he is not out to maliciously harm his servant, but is actually seeking the, his, own, his well-being. And so that is a mitigating circumstance in the ruling. On to the next one. In the uh, Civil War uh, era, or pre-Civil War era, uh, someone like Frederick Douglass was separated very early on from his own mother. And we come to a passage here, and a lot of people denounce that and say, you know, boy, slavery was so awful, separating families like this, that's just terrible. Well, here we come to a passage that seems to suggest that maybe this is happening. I think that should, that's actually should be Exodus uh, uh, 21, sorry, rather than 23. But um, this is how the text reads. If you buy a Hebrew servant, again, remember that language of transaction here, uh, he is to serve you for six years, but in the seventh year, he'll go out free without paying anything. If he came in by himself, he'll go out by himself. If he had a wife when he came in, then this wife will go out with him. 
if his master gave him a wife and she bore sons and daughters, then the wife and the children will belong to her master and he will go out by himself. But if the servant should declare, I love my master, my wife and my children, I will not go out free. Then his master must bring him to the judges and he will bring him to the door or the doorpost and his master will pierce his ear with an awl and he shall serve him forever. So again, remember what we have here is out of desperation, this man might contract uh, to hire out temporarily or sell his wife and children uh, and even himself to get out of debt. Again, this is voluntary servitude. Um, but this provides a roof over their heads, uh, clothing, shelter, and work to be done uh, to, to pay for that. But what we have here is that it seems that the wife and the children are somehow trapped in this arrangement and just simply cannot get out. Uh, that there's an anti-woman and anti-child bias uh, in this situation. So aren't we separating families here just as in the antebellum South? Well, three responses are in order. First of all, there's good reason to think that this passage isn't gender specific. This is what is an example of case law. If this is the case, then this is how you treat this particular issue. So biblical scholars recognize that ancient judges were able to make these transfers when, even when you're using the male pronoun that this could be applied to females as well. You know, if a man commits adultery, he's to be put to death. Well, you know what? That applies to women too, by the way. So judges know how to do that sort of a thing, or they should at any rate. And so we could, you know, a number of scholars have said we could simply replace the female gender with the male gender, and it makes perfect sense. So let's give it a shot here. She, the Hebrew servant, is to serve you for six years. She will go out free. If her master gives her a husband and they have sons or daughters, the husband and the children will belong to her master, and she will go out by herself. So it could simply be turned around. It's not you know, opposed to the woman uh, or the children, but it's just they need to serve their contract too. Think of the military. Now, if you get married while you're in the army, does that mean, oh, good, I get, to, I get to leave my army obligations because I'm now married? No, you have a commitment. And even if you're married, you've got to honor that commitment. You don't get out of it just because you're married. And the same thing applies here. Also, keep this in mind too. The scenario isn't as harsh as it first appears. That, you know, as I said before, if this person who is, uh, you know, has is entered into this contract, you know, the couple, you know, needs to, you know, either stay together or they need to come to terms with the terms of the contract uh, rather than simply thinking, oh, I can break this because after all, we're married and we should live happily ever after. A third point here is that the release man has three options. Again, these are hard economic times. Uh, it's tough to get along in destitute circumstances, but what he could do is, let's just apply this to the male now. The male could work elsewhere after his contract is up and simply you know, wait for his wife to finish the terms of her contract and then come with the kids and then they have some other living arrangement. Secondly, uh, the man could work elsewhere and try to buy out the employer. So the wife is working, and then the, uh, the man is working elsewhere, and he's trying to sustain himself 
but also is trying to earn enough money so that he can buy out the, the, the employer so that his wife and children come free. Well, you know what? That's a very difficult thing too. You're trying to, you know, you've got, you're trying to work on a, you know, double income here, but it's really gonna be a, 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 a large expenditure of energy and probably uh, a, a long time uh, being, being separated anyway. So the final solution that a lot of people opted for was to simply, sorry, to, to work permanently in the employer's home and you seal the deal with getting your ear pierced with an awl. That's all there is to it. A little pun there in case you were wondering. Um, <clears throat> in this arrangement, it's not a bad thing to have this kind of a security to, be, to have a roof over your head, food provided for you and your family, for, your, for the husband and the wife to be together in this arrangement. Uh, John Golden Gay, who teaches at Fuller Seminary, remarkable Old Testament scholar, says this kind of stability uh, you know, for a servant is really an enviable position to be in. That you don't, there are few worries that you have to take upon yourself. You know, provisions are taken care of by someone who is, uh, you know, who is you know, the owner of the home and so forth. So you've got, you've got a certain stability. I mean, one of the things that I like about, uh, you know, I, I, was, I was invited by someone uh, you know, at, a, at a certain school to become the dean. And I said, no, thank you. I really love where I am. I don't want to be an administrator. Uh, I don't want to be in charge of managing other people and dealing with a lot of the headaches that come along with that. Just let me teach. Just let me do the sorts of things that I'm doing. I don't want to have to worry about that stuff. So I'm glad to pass on being a dean somewhere and being in charge of other professors and so forth. That, you know, I'll, like they do in Texas, El Paso. Um, <clears throat> all right. Now we need to move quickly to the final text. So I hope you can see that there are certain rationales here. I think if we just kind of look at this with Western eyes, we don't have a clue about what's going on in the culture, I think we're going to be misreading certain texts here. Now, Leviticus 25 presents a few problems here, and I think this is probably the main text that critics point to. And so I think if we can uh, you know, understand this appropriately, we will, I think, have a, a good grasp and, and be on, on the, the broader issue. Uh, you know, if we could, as, as I said, if we can grasp this, I think it will kind of cause all the other issues to dissolve as well. This is really, a, I think, the, the key one that people uh, point to. Uh, in Leviticus 25, uh, we have this, uh, this passage that, that seems to suggest that uh, people are, you know, foreigners, you know, foreign slaves are just property, uh, that they can be bought and sold and so forth. So it says, as for your male and female slaves whom you may have, you may acquire male and female slaves from the pagan nations that are around you. Then too, it is out of the sons of the sojourners who live as aliens among you, that you may gain acquisition, and out of their families who are with you, whom they will have produced in your land, they also may become your possession. You may even bequeath them to your sons after you to receive as a possession. You can use them as permanent. What? Things were going along so nicely, and then we come to this. Well, let's try to unpack this a bit. Keep in mind that as we read this text, that term, one of the terms that is used, you've got toshav, you've got ger, that are used for you know, the, uh, the, the stranger and the uh, sojourner. 
In Leviticus 19, we're told that there is special care to be given to those who are sojourning in Israel, those who are foreigners living in this land who have benign interests. They're not, you know, uh, you know they're not from a you know, captured army or something like that. If you're from a captured army, you know, you're potential trouble within Israel. So there is going to be a, a little, you know, things are going to be a little harder on you than they are for people who are just looking for a place because there's famine in their, uh, play, their land of origin. Uh, like, like, uh, you know, like Naomi when she brings Ruth from Moab. You know, that's a, a benign interest in, in Israel, of, of a foreigner in Israel. But there are some people who have been prisoners of war and so forth. Well, you're going to have them chopping wood. You're going to have them hauling water buckets and so forth, doing a lot of heavy stuff and under close supervision. So just because you're a foreigner in the land doesn't mean that everything's equal. You know, there are people who are in, foreigners in Israel, like the, the, the foreign woman or the strange woman in the book of Proverbs who doesn't regard the morality and the religion of Israel of any, as of any consequence. And so she is a real threat to the moral structure of Israel. And so there's a warning that goes out against them. That term foreigner is often used very negatively. And so what about this sort of a situation? Well, we're told that the foreigners are to be loved. Love the stranger in the land. And as I said earlier, even the term acquire need not involve selling as though you're dealing with property here. Also, keep this in mind, in verse 45 that I, that I read, it, the term sojourners and aliens who are to be bequeathed over the generations, I think this, can be, uh, this needs to be understood in light of verse 47, which goes on to say that these very persons, these sojourners and aliens, can actually become persons of means in Israel and acquire their own freedom. In fact, they could potentially have their own servants. So keep reading the text is what I'm saying. Don't just stop at verse 45. And what about that bequeathing sons and daughters to the next century? Well, you know, you could do that within Israel too. If someone attaches himself to, a, to his own employer or master, then he gets to stay with this kind of security and stability in this household. And if they want to continue staying in there, they can do so. What's a, what's a little tricky for the foreigner is that the foreigner is not allowed to acquire land within Israel. It first belongs to God and then to the Israelites. Foreigners are not allowed to possess land. So they are by default going to be in a more vulnerable position. So what is the best way to, to go about you know, having a stable existence in Israel? Well, it's in all likelihood going to be by attaching yourself to a household and it might become a permanent arrangement. Otherwise, one could look elsewhere. Now, it's also important to keep in mind that foreign servants could you know, even be, become elevated and, and apparently fully equal as Israelite citizens could be. And I've given you, I've given you an example there in 1 Chronicles 22, 34, and 35 where Caleb's descendant Yarha marries the Egyptian uh, that should be um, Sheshan, uh, you know, marries, and then they have a child, Atai. That's a little typo there. Sorry about that. Um, also, remember Israel was required to give foreign runaway slaves protection within Israel's borders and they were not to be returned to their harsh masters. Kidnapping slaves was also prohibited. And since non-Israelites weren't to acquire land, as I said, the homeless and landless foreigners would not have a lot of choice. I, I emailed John Golden Gay about this. I said, what about the foreigners in land? I was referring to this particular text. Um, he said, well, frankly, they don't have a lot of choice. They don't really have a place to go. The only places that they really can go are to attach themselves to households uh, within these tribal lands these, uh, you know, within Israel. 
Keep in mind too that this Hebrew servant, as I mentioned, could simply be a foreigner. I mentioned in Exodus 21 too, a foreigner without political allegiance and he was not locked into lifelong servitude unless he chose this and did the ear-piercing ceremony. So he had to be released within the seventh year, so that could just as well apply. Now, this is, you know, this is all I can say here except maybe one final point. Remember that if foreigners who ran away from their masters as slaves could settle within any of the cities in Israel, how much more those within Israel who were you know, servants within households that they were being mistreated could find refuge in other places? So keep that in mind too. This is part of the broader context. Remember, you know, just as we read Leviticus 25 about these aliens, we remember in Leviticus 19, just a few chapters previous to that, that the Israelites are commanded to love the sojourner or the alien in their midst. That there was, he, God is reminding his people, just as you were strangers in the land of Egypt, you need to remember that these people are strangers in your land and you need to treat them accordingly. That is a command that keeps on coming up over and over again in the law of Moses. Well, we've got about seven minutes for questions and so I wanted to give you the opportunity. I'm cutting my talk short a little bit, uh, but in the interest of interacting with some of you, I just wanted to give you the opportunity to engage. Yes, sir. In the instance where a servant is harmed either by, um, is it limited to, to just abuse by the, the master or does it include an injury during the course of his daily work? Well, you know, it would be if the master strikes him, if there's an accidental uh, injury, then this is what, what happens. I mean, if somebody's, you know, you know, sharpened his axe uh, and, and uh, accidentally, you know, something ricochets off, uh, you, know, he, you know, well, is the, master, is the master or the employer responsible? Well, you know, well, more so for striking him and causing injury than if the servant does to himself, but the, the, the servant who is serving, I mean, it's, in the, it's you know, there's to be a regard for the servant in Israel, and so to care for him is very fitting. Uh, but, but that's, in a sense, uh, something that's indirect rather than, you know, something that the master has directly done. So, yeah. Another question. I've got a microphone here. Uh, I've got a couple of questions in the back. Try to keep things moving quickly here. So you say that uh, having slaves in Israel was somewhat of a buffer. So if you're really poor and you don't have any way to pay your debt, then you can go to somebody and tell them, oh, you know, I'm going to work for you. And then after seven years, that will be good. But today we have sex slaves all over and especially in Oakland. I don't know what is a Christian response to that. Should we say, oh, you know, that's just a buffer. You know, they have nothing you're, to you're right to point that out. It's, it's not as though, um, you know, the, the kind of harsh slavery that people condemn, you know, in the antebellum south or, uh, you know, I mean, it's going on, you know, in, uh, in the Sudan, uh, Christians have been enslaved by Muslims uh, and there have been people who, Christians who have actually raised money to buy their, to purchase their freedom uh, to, to, so that they could be out from under the, you know, the rule of these, you know, these uh, you know, Muslim uh, masters. Uh, you know, there are m- ministries such as the International justice mission that are opposed to and trying to free people from the, uh, from the slave trade. My own daughter uh, who's uh, studying at co- in a college in Michigan, she's very much interested in this kind of a ministry to, to work with local police and law, you know, law, other law enforcement agencies, uh, you know, not only here but in other parts of the world to bring 
young girls out of brothels uh, you know, or, or out of uh, very negative conditions where they're being abused and so forth uh, to bring them into places where they can earn a living for themselves, where they can learn certain, uh, certain trades and become economically self-sufficient. They become connected to churches. They uh, you know, end up getting married and having families of their own and so forth. That's the sort of thing that, uh, that, that it would be wonderful to see taking place. There are ministries that do that, but you're definitely right to point that out, that it's not as though this is something of the past. It's happening in our day. Each, each year, uh, a million persons are put into, these, into this kind of forced, uh, oppressive uh, servitude, whether it be uh, in the sex trade or in some other capacity. So you're right to point that out. Thank you. Um, another question here. Oh yeah, was, yeah, the question is, well, was this even held consistently? Well, the problem was not with the law, the problem was with uh, those who you know, did not keep the law or did not enforce the law. You know, the priests sometimes are being rebuked for not being the moral exemplars in Israel. Uh, the prophets are te- teaching uh, you know, people falsehoods uh, and then they're not true prophets of Yahweh after all. Uh, there is idolatry and so forth. Yes, people are some, you know, sometimes disregarding the law and what you see in the Old Testament is sometimes the prophets reminding them of their obligations to not to oppress the poor, uh, not to trade them as Amos uh, you know, mentions you know, for a pair of sandals sandals uh, you know, and, and treat them as, uh, you know, treat them as you know, continue in a sense, continue enslaving them even though they want to go free. You know, that, you know, so there are uh, rebukes to the people of Israel by the prophets for these sorts of practices uh, and it's not because of the failure of the Mosaic law uh, but it's a failure to attend to the Mosaic law that these sorts of problems uh, come within Israel and so you ha- will have those sorts of abuses um, and, and judges are ones who are supposed to oversee and make sure that justice is not corrupted or made crooked uh, as the Old Testament says but rather that when there are these sorts of cases that people have a a course of appeal, uh, that there is a, a protocol to follow where, 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 where there can be intervention. And, and remember that in these tribal lands, you had someone who was to be the kinsman redeemer, the point person legally, to make sure that people were cared for from within their own clan rather than being abused and so forth. So that's uh, what I'd say in response to that. We are, um, maybe one more question, if there is one. Uh, oh, yes, sir. Uh, mine's really uh, a consequences kind of question regarding the slave owner and uh, places in the Old Testament, if you will, and immediate one comes to my mind, of course, is uh, Moses killing the guy that uh, was abusing the slave, right? Right. Okay, and I guess I'm looking for uh, personalized, if you will, stories that illustrate the point as to what happens to the, the master uh, for either killing or abusing slaves, uh, because these rules really talk about um, how to treat those, but in my mind, they really don't get into what happens if you uh, don't do it. Uh, and maybe I just because I haven't read it far enough, yeah. but that's kind of my interest here. Yeah, I mean, those who put a servant to death, they are, you know, they they are to be capitally punished. I mean, that is, uh, you know, that you know, Exodus 21 uh, makes that uh, makes that clear. Uh, you also have even at a higher level. Let's take uh, let's take kings. 
Kings are routinely rebuked by the prophets. There is accountability. Think of David after he uh, you know, engages in this power rape of Bathsheba and then has her husband Uriah put to death in battle. Uh, the prophet shows up, says, you are the man who has, you know, like taking uh, this, this lone sheep from this poor man uh, to whom he's attached and just uh, taking it and giving it to the rich man uh, and, uh, and he feeds his friend who's coming in from out of town. Um, he says that you're, you know, tells David that, that the sword is going to come to your house, that there's going to be a fourfold vengeance or punishment coming to you. And so you see that in the death of his own children, you know, you know Absalom, uh, you know, his own son ends up dying, uh, you know, uh, and so forth. So you see that there is judgment rendered. There is accountability and so forth. I don't know if that's exactly what you're looking for. We got the microphone there in just a... Oh, I thought you had a mic, okay. In our it, country, which goes back to the founding of the country, which pre even precedes that. So uh, where is that really addressed um, in the Old Testament, if you will, other than the examples you just used? I think uh, the examples I used were pretty good, okay. but... Uh, <laughs> Um, I, I mean, you, you see this sort of a thing repeated. I mean, the charges the, uh, to, you know, the, to cultivate a certain mindset of you were once slaves in the land of Egypt. You ought to treat people uh, in a way that you would have wanted to be treated while you were in Israel. Uh, there is an accountability for the masters in the judicial system. There's an accountability to kings. Kings are told that they shouldn't do certain things like Deuteronomy 17. Solomon breaks all of those and uh, you know, you know, multiplying wives and wealth and so forth. Th these are the sorts of things that you see. You know, there, there is an accountability structure to, uh, you know, in the highest levels, uh, you know, Nadab and Abihu, you know, these are, you know, playing, doing strange fire, uh, probably some sort of, uh, you know, for, worship of foreign deities, they are out, they are struck dead. Uh, why? Because those who approach me uh, ought, you know, I ought to, by those who approach me ought to be regarded as holy. You know, God is very, very severe. Uh, you know, the closer you get to God, the greater responsibility you have to make sure that you are prepped for that. So anyway, we're out of time here, folks. Thanks very much and look forward to interacting with you the rest of the day. Biola University offers a variety of biblically-centered degree programs, ranging from business to ministry to the arts and sciences. Visit biola.edu to find out how Biola could make a difference in your life.